you ever get any chatter that he was still alive, you know, anywhere? Well, we, we, we looked for him. I had information. He was actually had fled to Aranya Pratet, which is a, a town on the Cambodian border with, uh, in Thailand. And, uh, so I actually wanted investigative assistance, and I went up there and spent a couple of days at a picture of Sukri and uh, checked out all the bars and massage parlors and whatever, see if we could find them, and, and, and we never did. But the other case I was going to mention I think you might find interesting is um, while I was doing this undercover thing with Sukri, um, the agent who was handling – the Herman Jackson Ike Atkinson case in Bangkok, uh, which is a group of, of uh, retired military NCA NCOs that were had been smuggling uh, heroin back to the states. That agent was transferred back to the states, and they, in those days, every case had to have an agent assigned to it, if only to write uh, status reports. So my boss, Paul Brown dumped this Atkinson case on me and I thought, oh man, what I got enough to do. Um, but it actually turned out to be a blessing because um, uh, I, I, uh, I guess after a few days, got a call from uh, San Francisco from an agent, Lionel Stewart. And um, there had been a couple of, of guys uh, in arrested in Japan, military, uh, 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 U.S. Army guys, and they, um, one of them flipped and identified his source of supply as the bartender at a bar owned in Bangkok by this Herman Jackson. So I thought, wow, you know, maybe maybe uh, we can make something in this case, case after all. Long story short, Lionel came over and we made a, uh, he actually made an undercover purchase of heroin from the source supply. We we got him to San Francisco where he was arrested, and he ended up. Um, uh, I mean, it's a long story, but um, we ended up being able to prosecute with some of the evidence we got through that case. We were able to, to prosecute Atkinson in in uh, North Carolina. You got you got to understand, Morgan. This guy's talking about Lionel Stewart. So when I get to Miami and and, and Charles here is the ASAC, we had two associate sacks, and one of them was Lionel Stewart. This guy was a shucking and jiving character. I mean, he was hilarious, black gentleman. Um, would not cut anybody slack. He you know he called a spade a spade, and he did it to your face. He didn't do it behind your back. But he was hilarious. I mean, he would just entertain. You could see how the guy could work undercover. I mean, he could sell ice to, a, to an Eskimo, you know, that kind of attitude. Yeah. Well, in my book, I call him the professor of undercover science. There you go. <laughs> it's a good title. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to. Anyway, I just had a random thought, but I'm going to just hold on to that for now. Um, but during that time that you were going, you know, you're, you're moving up, you're working these cases. Um, Tell us a little bit too about the about the history of the way things changed because, like you said, you started off working heroin, and then um, you started getting cocaine, right? So over your time, as you're seeing this and you're seeing all these drugs come out, do you always apply kind of the same approach and the same tactics, or do 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 the different drugs require different strategies in terms of how to take them down and how to you find the source of supply and how to go after it? I I, I think it was fundamentally the same. However. Um, the, the the cocaine problem in America kind of uh, I I think it took everybody by surprise uh, and uh, it was um, you know was, uh, my role in it uh, I ended up in in Miami um, as as um, Murph said as an assistant in charge and shortly after I I guess within a year. A position had opened up in charge of Caribbean interdiction operations and um, and managing the offices that we had in the Caribbean, uh, the Bahamas, of course, Jamaica, uh, Dominican Republic, and so I, again, because of my my military experience, by then the the U.S. military, Department of Defense, had been brought in by President Reagan into the drug uh, interdiction arena. So it was very important um, that we be able to coordinate 
DEAs, particularly our controlled deliveries out of Colombia with the military, because obviously the military is out there to interdict these smuggler aircraft, some of which could be our informants. And it would not only jeopardize a case, but could jeopardize the life of our, of our CIs. And so um, because of my military experience, my overseas experience, I was uh, given that job, which I have to say is probably the best job in DEA. Um, and I did that for three years. My point is that for my first year, I was my groups, I had four uh, groups in Miami and they were doing traditional type investigations. But then most of my time in, in uh, Miami was uh, in the Caribbean and it was really more interdiction than anything else. So, you know, one of our previous episodes, uh, Charles, we had a guy named Luis Navia. Does that name ring a bell? It does not. Um, do, Murph, do you remember who worked that case? It was... Um, Wasn't uh, that a customs case originally? It was, but the agent was out of Tampa. Uh, well, he'll figure it out. Let me look here on our list. Well, it was so funny. This guy was one of the guys kidnapped by Rascuno, not once, I think, but twice. And uh, But he was talking about... They were delivering so much coke to Miami during that time. They had there was one lighthouse down there that was basically the target. They would fly in and just dump their loads because the lighthouse was basically the target they would aim at. And that's when you kind of was what you're getting to. It's like it was just became the Wild West, right? It became the new Wild West, the free for all down in Miami with all of this coke going on. Mm-hmm. And well, it was I, uh, you may re- you may remember him, Charles Eric Kolbinski. Yeah, I know the name, yeah. Yeah, so Eric's the one that uh, actually went and invited Mr. Navi to come to the United States with me, young man. After what was that coming out? I always get it wrong. It was Venezuela, right? He was coming out of Venezuela. Venezuela. Right. What did he have? Twenty-five. He had 25 tons of Coke on a freighter. 25 tons of Coke, yeah. But back to you now, back to our regularly scheduled podcast with you. So, um, yeah, we were, you were talking about working. It's funny, though, you should mention the military. That's one thing I wanted to clear up for people. It's okay for the military to do international work outside the borders, but they cannot provide that same kind of assistance inside the borders because of posse comitata. So a lot of your, a lot of the things you were able to do outside the U S were things you could not with them were things you could not do right inside the U S. Yes, that's correct. And in fact, uh, one of our principal operations, uh, in the Caribbean was in the Bahamas operation bat. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, we actually had U.S. Army Black Hawk helicopters and U.S. Coast Guard helicopters flying teams of uh, Bahamian law enforcement and DEA uh, advisors to the to the sites of um, of offloads, and I, I I can tell you during the three years that I managed um, those that, that that program from Miami, uh, I mean the guys. John Pulley and, and Pat Shea. Pat Shea, the, the People magazine called him the Batman. Um, they seized uh, over 165 tons of cocaine and over 1,000 tons of marijuana during just the three years that I managed that program. It was a, it was a nice thing. I, I did that for three months in 1989 after Kevin Stevens was shot, my partner. And went down there, and they had done such a good job. And Pat was still stationed in Nassau at the time. Uh, they had done such a good job that I saw cocaine one time in, in three months while we were there. And that was a, a bell had washed up on the eastern shore of Grand Bahama Island, which is all in, uninhabited out there. 72 kilos inside that bell. Well, what you missed was at one point, I actually got permission from headquarters to teach them scuba diving. Nice. So that our agents could go down to sunken vessels, aircraft, and retrieve the uh, the, the drugs with coke or marijuana before the locals did. Yeah, and you know, I even saw photographs later on. They they taught the agents how to be extracted from a helicopter hanging onto that rope where they're attached to the rope. That zip line, yeah. That- yeah, and it just pulls everybody up in the air and away they go. I've seen photographs of that, some of the agents I knew. Well, we had some guys go through the, I went through the two-week DEA school, uh, but some of the guys went through the advanced stuff where they would do the marijuana eradication. They would infill them and exfil them, you know, using the Blackhawks and on that zip line. And mm-hmm. apparently there's a, there is a uh, kind of uh, 
tradition, let's say, for the guy who's the biggest prick in the class, he's the last one on the zip line. So when they're like going across the water, they dunk his ass in the water a Oops. few times in that Blackhawk before. They- <laughs> oh, that was so much fun back then. Yeah. Well, you know, that was so successful that uh, it actually discour- it began to discourage the Colombians from using uh, that route to bring drugs into the United States. They, they, um, they love the Bahamians. The Bahamians are, are, are very nice, uh, nonviolent people. You know, the, the few that were involved in this were just in it for the money. Um, and, uh, the Colombians loved it. And of course it's the most direct route from Colombia, the shortest route into the United States. But up bet, uh, put up so many obstacles uh, to them that they started looking uh, elsewhere. Uh, At one point, we found uh, cocaine seizures aboard vessels on the Miami River from Haiti. Uh, The cocaine being seized from them began to spike. And uh, so uh, I got permission uh, basically to open an office in Port-au-Prince, so I spent quite a bit of time down there uh, establishing that office. Walter Brown and Ron, uh, Juan Rodriguez uh, ran the office there, and they did the first uh, uh, drug seizure um, uh, probably ever uh, in, in terms of undercover operations. They did – I mean, it was just a – it was a, a real – uh, I, I, I mean, I enjoyed going there, believe it or not. Uh, and and um, So did Murph. Didn't you have a week down there uh, where you got the shits? <laughs> let me tell you what. If the world has a butthole, it's called Haiti. <laughs> well, it, it, it's actually, if, if, you, if you go up country, I mean, it, it, Port-au-Prince is, is squalor. But yeah, exactly. if you go up country, there's some beautiful parts of, of, uh, of Haiti. And I, I just enjoyed going. It was, to me, it was a challenge. Yeah. Oh, it was a challenge. But, but anyway, uh, we we had I brought a, an op bat team down there to to basically open the office, and I asked the Coast Guard to put a ship down at the southern uh, end of of uh, Haiti. We never we never um, seized anything. I guess the word had gotten out that that DEA was was there, and uh, so the Coast Guard they had. Uh, one of their H three helicopters uh, stationed at Port at uh, Port au Prince and started taking. It was like Disney World. Um, uh, I guess it'd be Disney World East, um, taking the the Haitians police, some of whom had never been up in a in a helicopter, had never seen their country before, and took them up for basically for rides, but. The word in Colombia that we got through some of our informants was that the cartels were saying, don't go to Haiti. DEA is everywhere. And we had two guys there. <laughs> oh, that, there you go. It only takes two to do the war on drugs. Take down Pablo, take down the Cali cartel. Hey, before we talk about something, I want to get into talking about Operation Snowcap. You brought up something. I was thinking about this and all of a sudden it crystallized. Do you think because of your success on things like uh, Bat and other things like that, that drove that, that denied the shipping lanes because now if you look at it it's kind of the dynamics have changed the cartels in mexico kind of run everything right so now you've got the land transport do you think some of that is what shifted the 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 kind of the power base and shifted the transportation routes to coming through mexico because of your success over there in the caribbean i i I know it did um i mean i think you can you can follow the history of it and you can see that and particularly once we shut them out of haiti uh they really had nowhere else to go in the caribbean uh so they did they were very reluctant i think uh to establish an alliance with the mexicans because the mexicans unlike the bahamians are, are can be very violent and um, and and demanding, and they wanted a piece of the action. But uh, I think because of of uh, Operation Abad and, and other things that were being done in the Caribbean, that the Mexicans didn't have an alternative. And of course, it's an alliance between the Colombians and Mexicans that were this plaguing us to this day. You know, and it's um, it's nowhere where there's nowhere close to what it used to be coming through the Caribbean corridor there. 
but you know, you talk to agents that are still on the job that work in that area, and the D- Dominican Republic is still a pretty hot place. It's probably the hottest place within all the Caribbean islands now. But just like Charles said, Mexico's the that's the main thrust yeah. of cocaine coming to the United well, States. Well, they've, they've kind of stuck it to the Colombians too, because now the only way to get through it basically is you got to go through their plazas, through their you know bosses, mm-hmm. through their you know areas. Hey, let's let's talk about Operation Snowcap uh, because we've had a couple folks on that were that did their time in Operation Snowcap. I don't remember did uh, did Zach do time on Snowcap? Murphy? I don't think so. I don't remember okay. saying that. Yeah. Um, so tell us, tell, let us, let us all of these, all, all of our players out there, tell us what Operation Snowcap was and why that was such an important operation. Well, um, I have to say that. My, this was another example of my military experience, um, which included by then my uh, Caribbean, you know, interdiction uh, operations with the uh, the Navy and and, uh, and Army. That got me transferred out of my favorite job, the best job in DEA. Kicking and screaming, I was dragged up to Washington <laughs> to take over the snowcap program, which had begun a few years before. Um, there was an Operation Blast Furnace in Bolivia. For the first time, uh, agents were sent with, as advisors with host nation uh, law enforcement to raid cocaine base laboratories in in uh, Bolivia it had a tremendous uh, impact and DEA wanted to sustain that so they created this um, operation snowcap they convinced the state department to um, to get uh, at, at that time initially like a dozen countries in South America to, to allow DEA agents to accompany their law enforcement people in going after these labs. Well, by 1990, it had shrunk. The operation had shrunk down to the two key countries of Bolivia and Peru. And um, so I was, uh, I, I was a skeptic of uh, Snowcap. Um, a lot of managers didn't like it because it drew manpower away from them. Um, from their offices, but uh, I just thought, you know, it's a paramilitary operation kind of far afield from what DEA's uh, expertise is and and what we should be doing, uh, basically investigations. Um, However, once I got up there, I, I, um, I, I made a trip down to South America. I went to uh, Bolivia, to Peru and uh, over time, I uh, became a believer. Um, I, um, uh, you know, <clears throat> there were uh, two two problems. One, of course, was the the manpower drain. But what people lost sight of was that when Snowcap began, uh, Congress gave DEA two hundred seventy seven positions to compensate them for the agents that would be sent down, trained, and, and deployed in, in snowcap. Well, the reality, the reality of it is there were never 277 agents in the program and it's during its entire life. And during my tenure, I, I, I had it for four years, the longest serving director of that operation, during my time, we never had more than 35 agents deployed downrange at any one time. So, so that was ridiculous. Um, the problem was a lot of those positions didn't necessarily go to the, to the SACs that were supporting the program with manpower. So they, they had a beef, but it wasn't with Snowcap. Uh, the other problem, as I mentioned, was the nature of the operation. Uh, for one thing, uh, my predecessor had kind of run it out of uh, Washington, out of headquarters, and I, w- I, I, I didn't think that was appropriate. Uh, I think the country at the Shays need to run their programs, whether it's their investigations or um, operations like Snowcap. They were they should be the, the people responsible. And, and in charge. 
and then came, and then uh, much to my relief they came up with this uh, kingpin strategy where going after the, the cartels in Colombia they would go after their um, infrastructure the the people who financed it who smuggled it who who uh, you know um, uh, brought the money back. I mean, all, all, all the infrastructure of these organizations go after it all. And I made the argument that Snowcap was part of that strategy to go after their source of cocaine base, which they needed to, um, uh, to, to make their cocaine hydrochloride. I don't know that Bobby Nieves, who was kind of the Snowcap guru, I don't know that he ever bought into that. Uh, but it was enough to convince the, the senior leadership in DEA that, that we, in fact, were part of the, the kingpin strategy. Well, obviously, you know, the, the cocaine paste that's coming out of Bolivia and Peru into Colombia results in hydrochloride, which is owned by all the cartels, and then comes to the United States. That's a pretty easy uh, connection to make there. You're, you're muted, my, uh, Morgan. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Uh, well, finally, you got your mute button that you needed there, Murph. Yeah, I need a, I need an extension of that mute. button right here on my desk. <laughs> hey, but that was one of the things Michelle Linhart told us about. One of the big cases she made was, I think, on the largest paste producer. Uh, I think it was down in um, I don't, Bolivia, maybe. But um, yeah, that was one of her big cases. Was, yeah. yeah. So I thought I thought I thought Snowcap was a very important program. I think it had a significant impact on the cocaine trade in those days. Um, it ended tragically. Um, actually, uh, Jack Lawn, our administrator, uh, started it um, and, and got the support of the State Department and, and the Department of Defense that loved it. But um, when, and, and then Rob Bonner came in as the administrator, he adopted it. Um, he allowed me to expand it into Central America, uh, into Guatemala, Operation Cadence, uh, which was extremely successful. It's a great example of just how effective these operations can be. Um, but then we had Administrator Constantine come in. Uh, Janet Reno is the Attorney General, and they were opposed to it. They just had a different philosophy about overseas operations. Um, and, and, you know, I, I respect their point of view. They didn't think uh, agents should be risking their lives in other countries, that it was the foreign country's responsibility to do, to solve their own problem. I thought it, I, I, I could understand that, but I thought it was very naive because um, we're the ones that are creating the problem for them. You know, it's easy for us to point the finger, say those rotten Colombians and Mexicans and, 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 and Bolivians are causing this problem. They're not causing a the problem. They're simply trying to satisfy us, our demand for illegal substances, which is a disgrace. And we're the ones causing them a problem that is corrupting their governments. And then we go down to try and help them to help us to stop this madness. And there are people like, you know, like Tom Constantine who, who just did, would not agree. Who didn't, you know, rest in peace, Constantine, but did not see the big picture and did not have any overseas experience. Uh, you're being diplomatic too. Cause I got to tell you, we've had some other DEA folks on that were less diplomatic than you talking about uh, him. Uh, I believe he was a New York city cop, right? No, he was state police. State, state police. Yeah. State police, uh, just and to your point, um, you can't, you can't, it's one of the lessons we learned out of Vietnam, right? You can't micromanage the war from the Pentagon. You know, you can't, you got to put people on the ground. They have to, you, and to your point, when you took over Snowcap, you got to, you have to be in country. People with the best knowledge are the boots on the ground, the people that are tip of the spear, right? So I always thought it was short-sighted when you try and do stuff and you don't go out and you don't visit, you don't know what's out there, you don't know who's doing what. You can't be an effective leader, you know, of this stuff. And so again, you're being charitable and diplomatic. Appreciate that uh, in keeping with your stature as a elder statesman on this call. But um, it was short-sighted. I mean, I think it set us back in several of these things. It set us back. You make so many gains. 
it takes years to make those gains, but it only takes days to lose it. Uh, I, I don't mind being called a statesman, but an elder statesman? I only said on this call. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Hey, Charles, that's why I invited you on here, because usually I'm the oldest guy on the screen here. <laughs> yeah, I've got 911 on speed dial in case Murph Vapor locks on me during the interview and stuff, you know. <laughs> 911 Orlando. But just, just to close out on, on Snowcap, of course, it um, ending it was no easy thing for – Tom Constantine, because the State Department loved it. The Department of Defense envied it. Um, you know, they provided all the support we needed. They even gave me uh, a staff of officers to help coordinate their support of us. Um, so it was very difficult to justify shutting down this program. And unfortunately, actually, after I left the program, it was probably two months after I left the program, um, they and, – and again, I, I, I've been running that – I was reluctant to leave, to be honest, because I had really a lot of admiration for the people in that program. But I was at it for four years, longer than I had ever had any job in my entire career, and I thought if I was going to have any career left – it was time to leave. So I left. I actually took a job as the deputy uh, uh, director of foreign operations. So when I was in that job for after a couple of months, we had that tragic uh, plane crash in Peru. And we lost some wonderful agents. Um, one of them I had actually encouraged to get into the snowcap program, Meredith Thompson. So it kind of struck home to me. And, uh, you know, you're speaking about my graciousness uh, toward Tom Constantine. He was gracious to me. Uh, he actually uh, sent me down. He, he originally sent the new director of foreign operations, Jim Milford, down and Donnie Marshall, head of the air wing. And then the next day, realizing how uh, touched I was and hurt by this. He sent me down. He didn't need to do that. So I went down there. Uh, by the time I got there, they had found the the uh, the crash and actually had extracted the bodies from the plane and, and the, uh, in a truly heroic uh, effort. Uh, and then Jim Milford and I escorted the bodies back to Washington uh, to their families and, and – uh, and Tom Constantine and, and Janet Reno were there, you know, to officiate the, that reception. So anyway, it was a tragic end, ending. That's what actually, I mean, I guess they figured no one could really blame DEA for ending it after that. But uh, but it was actually, you know, the program was reconstituted uh, years later. One of my team leaders was, uh, was Mike Braun, who rose up long after I was gone, to be the chief of, of uh, operations. And in Afghanistan, he began the FAST program, uh, which actually was, was, was snow-capped uh, in Afghanistan. And that's, we haven't done this in a while, Morgan. Let's, let's dedicate today's episode to the agents killed in Peru. And that was, uh, in addition to Meredith Thompson, who was a close friend of mine down there, we were young agents together, different groups, but also special agents, Frank Wallace, Jay Seal, Juan Vars, and Frank Fernandez. Uh, God bless you. Rest in peace. You represented your country well. In my book, that makes you a patriot. Well, th thank you for doing that, Murph. And, uh, and I have to say, just as, as an interesting note, uh, Frank Fernandez was this was the supervisor, uh, the team leader down there in in uh, Peru at that time. And uh, months before I left Snowcap, the uh, movie film crew from Clear and Present Danger, uh, the um, Tom yeah, it was Tom Clancy novel, Tom Clancy novel, the movie based on that. Harrison Ford uh, played uh, Jack Ryan. Exactly. Well, they they uh, they came to DEA headquarters to be briefed on how these uh, laboratory raids actually occurred. So, of course, I was asked by Constantine to to brief um, them, and which I did. 
And uh, by the way, in the book, there's no not even a mention of DEA. Uh, but I, but I, to, I, I told the, the the film crew how it really worked and who really did that type of work, and and there is in the movie, a, a, actually a female DEA agent in charge of the office there in in uh, in Colombia. Uh, but in any event, Frank uh, was was back from a tour of uh, down south at the time, so I we were doing a, what we called a mount out which is sending, it's a preparation of a team, you know, kind of a team building. We did at Quantico uh, in advance of a team going, being deployed down to Bolivia and Peru. So they would go through, you know, firearms and, and different types. And so I, I called Frank and I said, hey, I want you to take this film crew down to Quantico so they can actually see the real, the real deal, you know, how it really works and who's doing it. So Frank, uh, being the guy that he was, uh, one of the young ladies on the film crew, he began dating, and <laughs> she got she got him a, a, a into the last scene, and by chance, the last scene of the movie. By chance, my wife and I were invited to go to the filming of it. We got to meet Harrison Ford in his uh, high heels. You know, he's very short. So he wears, oh, really? wears his high heels to, uh, to, to elevate him. But in any event, uh, Frank Fernandez is sitting, you know, when, when uh, Harrison Ford walks into the Congress to spill the beans on what the military had been doing. If you look th at the top row behind the congressman, there's staffers and the second from the left is Frankie Fernandez. How about that? So I think that's kind of cool. And, and I have to say, and last thing about Constantine, that I have to say, you know, and I had some problems later in my career with him, but at that time, he took me with him to each of the funerals of the three agents, and I will always be grateful for that. Well, and, and yeah. we're not trying to cast dispersions on him. I'm just saying that, you know, like you say, years ago, but I think one of the reasons he did that, too, even being state police, being a cop, going to a funeral is a big deal. You know, that, that is your final measure of respect. And so, uh, you know, we salute him for doing that. I wanted to ask you, though, um, just from an emotional standpoint, well, just from an investigative standpoint, what did they determine to be the cause of the crash? They, the agents, and of course, we'll never know exactly, but what I believed happened was um, they had some information that there was a cocaine-based lab of some, some sort in this along this riverbank, you know, you need water for the process, and so they they were they were doing a milk run from from our base camp at Santa Lucia to Pucalpa, where we had a, a, a you know kind of a rest and recuperation place, and uh, so they said, hey, on our way, let's see if we can find this this uh, this lab, spot it, and then we can send people in later, you know, to take it down. Apparently, when they flew in, they flew up this creek and didn't realize that it was a box canyon. And I think what happened is they tried to pull up. It was a Casa short takeoff and landing aircraft. They're not made to go straight up in the air. And it flipped over and went nose down uh, into the jungle and basically on the top of a mountain. And the difficulty in getting to it was that. Um, they couldn't, it was difficult to get a helicopter rotor close enough because of the slope of the hill to get it close enough to be able to land anybody. Um, the helicopters couldn't land. Actually, the, the group led by Frank Belaz, uh, a former snowcap team leader who by then was a group supervisor in Lima, he took a team there and actually they were fast roped down from a helicopter, which is amazingly brave uh, act. Uh, and then they spent time, uh, they spent an overnight extracting the bodies from the aircraft and cutting down trees so a helicopter could land the next day to take the bodies and them out. It's a, a, it was an amazing feat. Yeah, the links you'll go to take care of your own. 
Well, and that had to be uh, emotionally tough too, flying back. You know, we're, we're, you know, it's almost like when they bring the service people over, the service members over, they land at Dover. Um, what was that like, you know, for you? Uh, it was it was heartbreaking for me, and uh, I still, you know, think about it. I will tell you, uh, they had the first. We have a a, a DEA survivor benefit fund. Uh, that retired agents pay into, you know, and, and they have fundraisers, uh, golf tournaments all around the country to raise money that goes to the, basically to the children of our slain agents. Put they, Kiki Camarena's one son I know is a judge today paid for by the survivor benefit fund. So it's a wonderful uh, thing. In any event, they had the very first Meredith Thompson golf tournament in Washington, D.C. the year after the crash. And I was paired up with uh, Meredith Thompson's father. He could not have been more gracious. You know, before I left D.C. a couple years ago, excuse me, I would still go out to the Meredith Thompson's uh, golf benefit. and, And I'm not a golfer, but you know, go out and support and, you know, carry food, carry chairs, ride around in a golf cart, smoke cigars and all the fun stuff that you get to do out there. And his sister or Meredith's sister still supports that. And her mom still comes down to that every year. Wow. Or comes up to it, I guess, from South Carolina. Man. Well, um, let's, let's kind of move to things, uh, lighten things up here a little bit. Um, you had a long career in DEA because, I mean, we're, we want to be respectful of time. We're, we're kind of um, getting in on that. But I wanted to talk about your takeaway from DEA because you didn't stop serving. So what made you finally decide that um, I've, I've done my time? Was it just mandatory retirement age? Uh, did you extend or, you know, what was your decision? Um, I was uh, – I actually had taken a job um, – detailed within the Department of Justice to set up a new organization um, to uh, try to improve the coordination, cooperation, information exchange among federal um, law enforcement agencies, the intelligence community, and with state and local police. Um, It's something that you know, I was at it for about a year and a half uh, before I retired, and it's something that after nine one one, I thought, geez, they should have had uh, the this, this same type of organization to coordinate uh, intelligence information uh, on terrorism, and it might have helped to prevent that uh, tragedy. But in any event, I was within a year of retirement, mandatory when uh, 9-11 hit. And um, in a record 29 days uh, from that tragedy, uh, George Bush signed into law the Transportation Security Act, which created the Transportation Security Administration. Under federal law, you can't take another federal position unless your salary is reduced by the amount of your retirement annuity. So for me to become a TSA employee, basically, I'd be working for nothing. I I would have done almost anything after 911 to get even with Osama bin Laden, but working for nothing was not one of them. So uh, shortly thereafter, Congress... Um, passed some legislation which allowed uh, a up to five years uh, to be exempted from that requirement. And when I heard that, I said, wow, I was the first in line. And in fact, I was the first DEA person to be hired by the new TSA. Why'd you, why? Why did you pick TSA? What was it about it that said, I want to go do that? I mean, obviously, you know, we get the 9-11 reference. We just, in fact, we just, on our um, episode that came out on 9-11, we had a, a former CIA um, case officer, Rick Prado, um, was on, and we were talking a lot about that. But what made you want to, what made you want to, you were leaving DEA, like you said, approaching retirement age. What made you say TSA is the place I want to go? Well, it was just 9-11. 
Um, just in the aftermath of that, I thought whatever I can do to help is what I want to do. And, and of course, with my background, I've never worked in an airport before, to be honest. But, you flew through a hell of a lot of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but my, you know, my law enforcement, you know, actually people don't understand this, but TSA was created as a law enforcement agency. Um, and what had happened was, uh, in, in the in the law, if you look at the original bill, uh, the FBI was required to give up its responsibility for investigating security incidents at airports. State and local police uh, were to give up their responsibility at airports to a uniformed uh, TSA force. Well, neither of them were happy about that. Uh, and they lobbied Congress, and within uh, months, uh, Congress uh, retracted that, and uh, and the FBI kept their their investigative responsibility. I was supposed to have had I, I was I was hired to go to Orlando, Florida airport, which at that time was the fifth largest in terms of screeners number of screeners. I was supposed to have a uniform police force, a handful of investigators. I got none of that. Um, they should have changed the name from Trans Transportation Security Administration to Transportation Screening Administration because that's what we ended up doing. I did have one law enforcement assistant. In fact, I lured Rick Scoville away from uh, DEA. He was the... Um, uh, the agent in charge of the Orlando office for DEA. So I don't know, DEA hopefully has forgotten that by now. But, <laughs> um, but Rick was terrific. And what his job was, was to ensure that there was an appropriate response to security incidents by federal, st uh, state, or local police and to investigate allegations against our own screeners, our own employees. But, um, uh, Anyway, so I had taken a job thinking I was getting into a law enforcement organization. By the time I got to Orlando, however, uh, things had changed dramatically. Well, yeah, boy, had they. Because um, that, that's actually what I was getting back to. Um, we were talking, um, when you started there, what year was it when you started TSA? Just right after 9-11? Well, it w was 2002. I mean, I, obviously, it took... You know, the hiring process took several months, and, and I actually started in April of 2002. So I retired from DEA on a Friday. And started, started Monday. Mo Monday, and believe me, I had a 1,000 screeners in Orlando. That was not a retirement job. <laughs> <laughs> now, were you living in Orlando at the time, or did you have no, to move there? I was in Washington, D.C., and... You know, I had been, uh, as we talked about, in Miami for four years and, and uh, enjoyed it, but we had no intention of ever going back. Um, we were in Washington, D.C. We were uh, in the home that we had built in 1978 and moved back into four times. Where was that uh, at? In Oakton, Virginia. Yeah, I'm, I'm over. I'm still Murph, the traitorous bastard, left me a couple years ago. I'm in Ashburn, so. Oh, okay. So yeah, I'm at the. Uh, uh, it's it's actually Stewart Mill Woods. It's near um, uh, Fox Mill Road. And, yeah, in, yeah. In Oakton, and uh, anyway, um, I forget where I was going. No, you were talking about you'd move back and forth. You weren't ever going to move back to uh, Florida again. To Florida. But, you know, when they offered me uh, Orlando, I, you know, Joy and I talked about it. I said, you know, it's hard for me to say I'll only go where I want to go. After, you know, in, in, in the aftermath of 9-11. And Joy agreed. She said, hey, if that's where they want you to go, let's go. So back to Florida we went. Hey, real quickly, by the time you moved back to Florida, how many different places had you lived by that time, you think, by the time you ended up back in Orlando? Well, in my career, and I had a couple since then, but in my career, I moved 14 times. <laughs> now, did your kids ever get lost on the way home, or how about you? You know, <laughs> they, they, they never really knew where to call home. <laughs> 
But I have to say, and I felt bad about that often, uh, moving them around. For example, when I got drafted, the only move that I didn't ever actually ask for was the one to snowcap out of Miami. I mean, I had the dream job and, and, and left there. But to make matters even worse, uh, my older daughter was a rising senior in high school. And, you know, our daughters were teenagers and they had all their friends there in, in, uh, in uh, the Miami area. And, uh, and I had to drag them up there. So uh, it, it, was, it was painful at times. Uh, but years later, they have told me that their experiences helped them to grow and that they would never trade anywhere that they've lived and what they've done for anything. So that, that makes you feel good. Yeah, it, it it helps alleviate that guilt feeling a little bit, doesn't it? It does. It helps. I think we all go through that. We so uh, there's one other thing, and I, I I don't want to cut you short on TSA, but I know at the end of the book, you, you're on you have a uh, like a personal mission that you've gone on to revive, like the father of DEA, the Godfather of DEA, the one of the original creators here, a guy named Harry Ainslinger, and, and I don't want us to run out of time before you get a chance to mention that. So, uh, again, and I'm sorry we're running out of time, but I uh, want to give you the opportunity here to tell us quickly about Harry and and, uh, and what you're trying to do. Well, this, this was some years after I retired from, actually from full-time employment. And, um, you know, I was doing part-time work, but it had always bothered me that, um, the, as you say, the father of international drug law enforcement was a forgotten man, not, not only by the general public, but even within DEA, there was no mention of him, no, no memorial, no picture, no plaque, no building name for him, nothing save for perhaps some memorabilia in the DEA museum. And I thought that was terrible. So, um, it, it all started, I, I've been a mentor of criminal justice students up at Penn State for probably 30 years now. And uh, so every year that I was in, in the area, uh, we'd go to a, a ceremony with the, some of the, the students and the FBI would present an award 500 bucks or something to, uh, to one of the undergraduate students. Well, to their, to the student, to the families, to the staff, the, they thought that was, they thought the FBI was terrific. And guess what? They named it the J Edgar Hoover award as, as many warts as that guy has. Um, <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> so I proposed to uh, DEA, um, retired, um, it was actually the FBI Retired Agents Association. So, uh, so I uh, proposed to the DEA Retired Agents Association that they uh, start their own scholarship award uh, modestly. Um, and um, they decided they were instead going to keep the money going to the Survivors Benefit Fund, understandably so. Uh, but then... DEA was running a series of um, programs uh, out of the lib out of the um, museum, and I suggested that we should have um, Harry Anslinger as one, you know, as a topic of one of these um, um, programs. And so they they uh, they agreed to do that. I got the fellow who wrote the book the definitive biography of Anslinger to be the keynote speaker I spoke. So in preparation for that, I read just about everything uh, that I could find about Anslinger, things that he had written. And probably a, a month before I saw on the internet that the guy was being accused of being a racist. And I thought, wow, if this guy was a racist, I, I don't want to, be promoting this guy, you know? And so I started getting nervous about it and I, I got to do some research. Anyway, I learned that Anslinger had hired the first black agents of any federal uh, agency, at least federal law enforcement agency. Uh, 
And I actually found one of them, um, Bill Davis. He was living in Potomac, Maryland. I flew up and, uh, and, and went to his house and, and spoke with him about it. And he said, he told me, he said, yeah, he said, there were racists in the FBN, Federal Bureau of Narcotics, uh, predecessor to BNDD and, and DEA. He said, but Harry Anslinger wasn't one of them. What well, is this guy, uh, is it Wayne uh, Valentine? He wrote a book. Uh, I don't know. I have it here. It's uh, uh, Strength, Strength of the Wolf or something like that. That um, that that says that Bill Davis quit DEA because he couldn't get promoted. And I asked Bill, and he said, "Well, no, that's that, that, that's not what really happened." He said, "I decided to quit because." Uh, apparently he, at that time he had to pass the federal service entrance exam. He, he was unable to do that or hadn't taken it. And he was hired under schedule a, which doesn't allow you to be promoted beyond journeyman level until you pass the FS, FSEE. So he decided he was going to go with state department. He spoke five languages. He was going to go with the state department and, uh, which he did. When Anslinger learned about it, he called Bill Davis from Baltimore to his office in Washington. He said, Bill, why are you leaving? And uh, Davis told me, he said, because I want to be a diplomat like you. Well, I asked him about the, the chapter in one of Anslinger's books that, that talks about Bill Davis uh, working undercover against an Italian organized crime group, the 107th Street Gang. And Answer and made a hero out of him. Well, Bill Davis didn't even know the book had been written, let alone anything about him. So I, and, and that's not something that a racist is going to do. Um, and and so I sent a copy uh, after I got home. I sent a copy of the book to uh, to Bill, so he so he he would see that. But in any event, I was convinced he was not a racist. In fact, Bill Davis came to the program at DEA headquarters about Anslinger, along with seventeen of Anslinger's family, who were just amazed that DEA was finally recognizing their beloved ancestor. Um, anyway, so I feel real good about that. You know, and that, and that just shows you that uh, politics and misinformation can skew the best reputations of anybody. It doesn't matter who they are. It just kills you. You know, this guy, he's a hero for back in his time. And, and I, some of the things you talk about in your book that he implemented and he did, they're just groundbreaking. Well, he, he's the one who convinced J. Edgar Hoover that there was such a thing as Italian organized crime. Hoover would not admit it. And it was Anslinger, what um, was a, a, a diplomat. He, he was a representative in the United Nations. They kept him there uh, seven years after he retired because he was considered the world's expert on international drug control. Uh, he's responsible for the single convention upon which our drug law is based and probably 90% of every drug law in the world. I mean, it, the guy was incredible. And Again, nobody, everybody knows who Jagger Hoover is. Nobody remembered Harry Anslinger. Not even in our own organization. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and the things they remember J. Edgar Hoover for aren't always flattering either. So, yeah, that's <laughs> true. That's hey, true. but I want to ask you something about that, though. Um, I am so sick of the cancel culture where merely the accusation is enough is to derail stuff. True, there are things, but you know, people, people forget so many things. For example, Frank Sinatra. Refused to, I think, play at one of the uh, Las Vegas hotels because they wouldn't let Sammy Davis in. And he says, if he can't get in, I'm not doing anything. There are so many examples of people through history who are not racist. And, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because I just think it's disingenuous for one person to be able to say, well, he's a racist. We can't do that. And I'd like to turn it back around. Well, where's your proof? Here's all the other stuff. Where's your proof? It can't be that the accusation is simply enough anymore. If that was the case, then why have a trial? Why 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 have a defense attorney? We simply, if I accuse you of the crime, you're guilty of the crime. Let's just go straight to sentencing. That would never fly in American justice. Well, Harry Anslinger, when he after he retired, 
he, he retired in Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania. The mayor of the town presented him. They actually had a Harry Anslinger day, presented him with a plaque and said that the plaque would hang in the Blair County courthouse in perpetuity. So as part of my research, I went there and it was gone. No plaque. <laughs> Nobody. In fact, the, 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 the county commissioners there had never, they themselves had never heard of Harry Anslinger. So I got AFNA to fund the recreate. I found in an old newspaper the actual wording of the original plaque. I had it reproduced, and I got the current commissioners in Blair County, the mayor of Hollidaysburg, to, to ceremonially restore the plaque back on the wall. And I have a friend one of my mentoring buddies from Penn State who's an attorney, his office right across the street, by chance in an in an in a building that used to be a coffee shop that Anslinger hang, used to hang out with his buddies after retirement. And I got him watching to make sure the plaque is never <laughs> taken down again. Well, those four bolts and gorilla glue and the plastic <laughs> cover over it. Yeah, you know. And the hey, one thing. One one thing we need to add on there is is we have a rule here that if you use an acronym, you got to tell what it is. So you mentioned AFNA. That's the Association of Former Narcotics Agents. There you go. Which is so we were DA's retirement age. We Murph and I were just at a conference in Nashville. Yeah, uh, they have an annual conference. And first time we've seen each other since I don't know. I, Maybe since Miami days. Yeah, you know, in, in Miami, I was going to say that you started out talking about you were a new agent in Miami when I was brought there as an ASAC. I'd like to be able to say that you stood out among <laughs> hey, all here these comes, agents. Here comes the backhanded compliment, but... Uh, but, Murph, I'm sorry, I don't remember you. <laughs> <laughs> you don't remember the redneck undercover that went to uh, Turks and Caicos on his first big trip and got it, everybody got sick except him. Uh, but, 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 but Murph did quite well for himself uh, throughout his career, no question about that. See, I was going to give you credit for that, Charles, but uh, pff, not now. <laughs> but you know, but hey, but let's look at it in a positive light. If you were a real fuck up, a real screw up, he would have remembered who you were. Yeah, that's very that's, true. That's right. Those are, that's the thing in DEA. We remember the worst about people, not the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the way it is with a lot of cops. Well, hey, look, Charles. I mean, there's so many stories I know we could go into, but I want to be respectful of your time. But. Look, um, we don't want to. We want to end. Bef we don't want to end before we say a couple of things. Number one is we give you credit for TSA. You got to tell everybody what you're credited for with TSA in Orlando. In other words, being the first to do something. What was that down in Orlando? Well, I'm, our, our um, we, we were the first airport, major airport, to actually complete a federal takeover of screening. Uh, we were considered uh, mentioned by Condé Nast Traveler as the most friendly, family-friendly airport in the nation. So, I mean, we got a lot of credit, but the credit is not due to me as much as it is the fellas uh, that and, and ladies who work for me down there in TSA that worked uh, literally day and night uh, trying to do almost an impossible job. You know, TSA is the largest uh, bureaucracy organization created since World War II. Literally overnight, an agency of almost 50,000 people were created. And uh, people don't understand that the, the uh, original bill creating TSA established uh, certain um, basic requirements for screeners. I was told I would be inheriting a thousand screeners from 911 and give and giving them better supervision and training. Only 10% could meet those basic requirements. We had to hire in Orlando alone 700 uh, new screeners, some of whom had never been in an airport before, let alone did security screening in one. So it was a tremendous challenge. And it's something that I'm very proud of that we were able to accomplish. Well, I, I just want to make one comment about that, that, that you're not taking the credit, um, which is a, a sign of a leader. However, 
when, as I moved up through the ranks and, and, you know, you're mentoring others to come up through the ranks and, and take promotions and take on more responsibilities and, and help younger agents to become better agents, they would come in and when their agents did something well, I, I credited them as the supervisor. And they said, it wasn't me, it was the agents. Well, you know what? The buck stops with you as the boss. So you do get the credit because you gave your people the opportunity, but here's the backside. When your agents screw up, you're going to step up and take the blame to protect them. That's what a leader does. So it's nice of you to, to be humble there, and we appreciate that. But the truth is here, uh, Charles, you were a leader. You still are a leader amongst men. It's been a true honor to have you on here today, even though you don't freaking remember me. I thought, I thought we were like this, you know? Oh, yeah. Murph, we are now. <laughs> and there goes my chance to get any dirt on Murph back in Miami. Murph who? I don't remember that little. Hey, but, but Murph, I love it. That's great. But, but, but pull, you know, show, tell everybody about his book again because you got it in front of you. So we want to make sure. And we'll Definitely. put it on our book list, too. So, Charles, we have a book page. We're going to list it there. We're going to let everybody know where to get it. Yeah, so the name of it is Unpopular Causes, A Career in Service to America. Charles Harry Lutz is the author. I got my copy off of Amazon. Do you have a website, Charles, I do. people it's un- go to? Unpopularcauses.com. There you go. So Easy to remember. Unpopular Causes. And that's, you know what? A lot of people think that that's what they think of law enforcement. So Well, not only law enforcement. Vietnam, the most unpopular war in our history. TSA, the agency everyone loved to hate. Everything I did in my career, I think, was unpopular with somebody. <laughs> but also, we want to, and I mentioned this earlier, we want to give credit to your your wonderful wife, Joy. I've never had the honor or pleasure of meeting her. But you outlined the sacrifices that she makes in the book. And and it's true of all of our wives. They, they give us the latitude to do our jobs, not knowing whether we're going to come home at night. Drag, we drag them away from whatever careers they might want to have so that we can have our careers and they're there to support us 100%. So, uh, Joy, I, and if you hear this, Joy, my hat is off to you. I hope to meet you someday. Uh, as, you're as big a hero as, as your husband is in my eyes. And when she meets you, Murph, she's going to go, never heard of you. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, we're used to that because people say, oh, Narcos, what, 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 what was your role in Narcos? I said, you know who Pablo Escobar is? I said, they say, sure. And I say, you know who Steve Murphy and Harvey Penn are? Who? <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me, last thing here, do you remember the movie The Dirty Dozen? Oh, yeah. Remember the one thing where Donald Sutherland is going down and he's talking? They got him impersonating the general and he goes, where are you from? I think he said something like a Tumwa, Iowa. Never heard of it, son. <laughs> just <laughs> deflated him. And just moved on. <laughs> Took the wind right out of his yeah. sails. Well, hey, Charles, so this is us saluting you. First of all, welcome home, soldier. Um, I, I take it personal, too, because my dad, like I said, World War II and Vietnam vet. So many people didn't get the uh, welcome home they deserved. So uh, on behalf of us, uh, thank you for your service to our great country, not only in the Army, but in uh, DEA and as well as TSA. And we'll make sure people go to unpopularcauses.com. They'll get your book, Unpopular Causes. We'll put that on our book page. And this is us, sir, Lieutenant Captain, whatever you retired as, General, saluting you, (laughs) saying thank you. Um, Been an honor to have you on. Absolutely. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. All right. You guys don't go anywhere. Stand by. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. Uh, I'm sorry. Who are you again? I don't know. I thought I was. Uh, I thought I was well known, but Charlie didn't even know me. Never heard of you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, and I was just telling Morgan. Charles contacted me later that night after the interview and, and apologized on an email and said, his, "I guess his wife ripped him a new one." Joy, love you, lady. I've never met you, but I love you. <laughs> but I told Charles that's one of the funniest things we've ever had happen on the podcast. I love it. And here's the guy goes down. Well, here, but the, the good thing point, like I said, was if you were a real screw up, you know, they would have known your name. So. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's like me. You go back and ask people about Morgan Wright. Him? Is he still around? <laughs> well, you know, in DEA, we're infamous for uh, not remembering the good things about people. We remember the bad things about people. <laughs> well, this is an episode, guys, when you get done listening to this, you'll listen to the good things. So, hey, Charles, again, this is us. Welcome home, soldier. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for your service to our country. Thank you for serving DEA and TSA. And again, Again, um, we also want to remember the other thing we do is we dedicated it to the five agents killed in the plane crash. Yes, uh, in uh, as part of Operation Snowcap down in yep. Peru, and one of them happened to be a friend of yours. Yeah, Meredith Thompson. We were we were baby agents together in Miami, so it's. Uh, mm.
you just, you know, you never know what's going to happen in life. Yeah, never know. Well, uh, again, um, uh, there's us saluting you. So, hey, guys, but if you like that, make sure you head on over uh, to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Hit those five stars if you like that episode. Tell us what you think about it. Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. That's where we put his book there, so it'll be on our book page unpopular causes and you can find it at his website unpopularcauses.com some great pictures some great uh anecdotes and that's where you can order the book from also follow us on that thing uh on social media at game of crimes on twitter game of crimes podcast on facebook and the instagram hey but you know you got to go over to patreon patreon.com slash game of crimes and murph i got to tell you right now when we do our next episode of 911, what's your emergency Mm -hmm. i have one of the most unique 911 calls ever made oh cool Cool. We got to get that one recorded. That's just going to be. I'm not. We're not going to do a whole case about that. I have another one for that. But I, I just, I came across this and I said, this is the most unique call I've ever heard in my life. Wow. Looking forward to it. You're going to have to listen if you want to find out. So remember, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We do that. We've got our uh, Q&A session that comes up. We've got our case of the month that we talked about. Um, we review movies, which Murph is not being allowed to pick another movie for six months as punishment. I'm, a, I'm in timeout. <laughs> You're in timeout. You know, and uh, you can't make this shit up. We, you know, we just had some stuff like the story about the guy on the the power wheels, the Jeep. <laughs> You just can't make this shit up. No. Hey, you know, seriously, come over and check us out on Patreon. If you think you're a crime, crime sleuth, you know, and, and you're, you've always <laughs> Say wanted- Say that as a crime sleuth? Yeah. That's when you've been drinking, you know. <clears throat> I had coffee. <laughs> um, but seriously, come over because I know nothing about these crimes that Morgan's going to put up on the 911. And, and he starts it off by playing the 911 call. And that's how we begin trying to figure out what happened. So if you enjoy that kind of stuff, I mean, like right now, as we're recording today- CrimeCon is on, is taking place here in Orlando, and, and we completely missed that one. Shame on us. But that's what people, that's where crime sleuths go. So, you know, come over and just take a look at Patreon and see what you think of it. Yeah, and take a look and take a listen, because that's what we do on uh, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Okay, guys. Um, also, make sure you head on over to Game of Crimes fans. Type that into Facebook. Our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, rules with an iron fist. And a velvet glove will let you in if you are deemed worthy. But you know what? More importantly, we want to thank you guys for listening to us once again, right? This We can't do this without you. So we really appreciate your help on this. So support us through Apple and Spotify. Support us uh, through sharing this with your friends, but support us mainly by allowing me to finish up by saying thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all. And I have no idea who you are, Game of Crimes. 